0: This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.
1: Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker and uh, for his first time co-hosting, I am very delighted to be joined by Vincent Bevins. Vincent, how are you doing?
2: Good. Good. How are you? Thank you for having me.
1: I'm very well. Vincent, you should know already, he's been on Downstream twice, author of the Jakarta Method and If We Burn, which I have a copy of right here, as you can see. I don't normally show my yeah. guest books, but I, I did have that on the tube this morning. Um, when we go to a wide, you need to explain to me what that flag is behind you.
2: It's a starry plow. I just I was in Ireland three days ago, and I needed to put something on this wallet so it just didn't look like a, uh, a dirty white uh, flat in, in London, which is what it is. But yeah, it's a starry, starry plow, uh, old uh, Republican symbol from from Ireland.
1: Very interesting, very cool. Um, Coming up later tonight, the Tories' latest announcements on migration policy. If you want to marry someone from a different country, you better be goddamn rich. That's the message from them. Um, We'll also be talking about COP and some of the speeches made there um, by Brazil's Lula and Colombia's Gustavo Petro. First story, Israel is expanding its bombing campaign against Gaza, moving further south into the territory. Meanwhile, the Gulf Cooperation Council, a political union of Gulf states, has met in Qatar. There, Qatar's emir has issued this stinging rebuke to Israel
3: grace on the international uh, international community to allow this heinous crime to continue for more than two months where systematic and purposeful killing against innocent unarmed civilians continue including women and children. Entire families and households were wiped out of the civil register. The already frail infrastructure were destroyed. Wood, food, water, fuel, were used as a weapon. Hospitals, schools, and other vital infrastructures were destroyed with a pretext of self-defense, despite the fact that self-defense cannot be undertaken as a pretext by an occupation force. And this is a genocide committed by Israel.
1: Qatar played a major role in the negotiations that led to a week-long ceasefire and the release of more than 100 hostages held by Hamas in exchange for around 240 Palestinian captives. Now, Qatar is generally considered to be sympathetic to Hamas, but the strength of that statement, saying that Israel is committing genocide, that's still significant. And it comes as the IDF drops leaflets over parts of southern Gaza, telling Palestinians to move to avoid being bombed. Thousands have now begun to move further south towards Rafah. These were scenes in the southern city of Khan Yunis last night as Israel hit it with airstrikes. A spokesperson for the Gaza Health Ministry said 43 dead bodies were brought to the Nassar hospital overnight. High numbers of severely injured patients are also reportedly arriving at the hospital every hour. It's now put out an urgent call for blood donors. And in a sign that Israel's operations are set to intensify, tanks were earlier spotted close to the Khan Unis' or the outskirts of Khan Younis, um, with the IDF now saying it is, quote, operating in the heart of the city. Israel is identifying its new movements with a, quote, third phase of the operation, while one of the IDF's commanders described today as, quote, the most intense day of fighting since the beginning of the invasion. This is how Chief of Israel's General Staff, Herzi Halevi, described the intensification of the IDF's offensive. After 60 days since the beginning of the war, our forces are surrounding the Khan Yunis area in southern Gaza. At the same time, we are working to deepen the achievement in the northern part of the Strip. Anyone who thought that the IDF would not know how to resume the fighting after the truce was mistaken. Hamas is feeling this strongly. The IDF also earlier published a map telling civilians to leave parts of Khan Yunis. Residents from the northern and central parts of the city were ordered to evacuate towards the Mediterranean coast nearer to the Egyptian border, and to the east of the city for safety. The UN says that the areas marked on the map housed 120,000 people before the war, and that figure will now be significantly enlarged because of people displaced from northern Gaza. It's not clear where these people are supposed to go, with Gaza's UNRWA head, Tom White, telling Al Jazeera this... They tell people to move to Rafah to receive assistance, but we are not able to provide for hundreds of thousands of new internally displaced people. Rafah normally has a population of 280,000 and already is hosting around 470,000 displaced people. It will not cope with a doubling of its IDP, so internally displaced people population. In the south of Gaza, a huge Palestinian population is being forced into ever-shrinking areas, but in the north of the territory, those that trapped, or those that remain, are trapped. The IDF had earlier encircled Jabalia refugee camp, but it now reports that it is operating within it. This was an airstrike on Jabalia on Sunday where dozens of Palestinians were reported killed after the IDF targeted residential blocks. The refugee camp has fallen victim to multiple airstrikes over the course of the bombardment. Israel says it's being used as a base by Hamas, as they always say whenever they bomb something. The Gaza Health Ministry now says that 15,900 Palestinians have been killed since Israel's assault on the territory began less than two months ago. Around 800 of those were killed since the ceasefire collapsed last Friday. And the Israeli military has now said that since the start of the ground operation on October the 27th, that's just five weeks ago, 100,000 artillery shells have been fired on the strip. That's 20,000 shells fired by ground troops alone each week. That's the context that has led the World Health Organization's representative in Gaza, Richard Pieperkorn, to say this.
2: The situation is is getting worse
1: by the by the hour. I mean, like there's intensified bombing uh, going on all around, including here in the southern areas, Khan Yunus uh, and, and even in Rafa. Uh, even what I've seen over the last couple of days that we see an increasing vastly increasing number of IDPs." coming from the so-called middle area and, and even now the southern areas uh, uh, towards furthermore to the, to the south. Meanwhile, the president of the International Red Cross, Mirjana Spoljarik, has visited Gaza today, where she gave this account of what she saw.
0: The majority of people met today have been displaced several times. I met people who have lost limbs because they needed to evacuate between treatments. And they lost a hand or a foot because they couldn't be treated in the hospital where they arrived first. I was told today that the North has lost its entire surgical capacity. We have to find solutions to this. We can't turn away from what is evidently a moral failure in the face of the international community. I'm calling on all parties, on everyone who has an influence to de-escalate and to find other, the military solutions to what is an immense suffering of the people on both sides. We have to protect the rights of the people, we have to protect the rights of the civilians, we have to protect the rights of the detainees, we have to protect the rights of the hostages. The ICSC will do its utmost to help alleviate and reduce the suffering, but we can't do this alone. And there's not only a humanitarian solution to this. There must be a political one.
1: So we're hearing pretty much every NGO under the sun with any connection to, to Palestine basically saying the bombing has to stop, right? Complete consensus. Of course, that the UN, Israel will say these are just Hamas proxies. Um, and they will be ignored by many in the West, not 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 everyone in the West, of course. What what we tend to see in the West is not people sort of dismissing the pain and suffering in Gaza, but just say, oh, well, I mean, it's incredibly sad, but also completely necessary. Keep bombing them. Vincent, what I want to ask you about here is the issue with the Qatari emir um, saying that this is a genocide. As I say, I, I'm not entirely sure how significant I should sort of interpret that to be, given that, you know, Qatar are, you know, they house or that they have given space to, to Hamas for them to operate their sort of political operation. Now, I think they do that on the request of the United States. It's, it's not that they are harboring terrorists or whatever. It's, it's that uh, most countries in the world want there to be a diplomatic base for Hamas. But is it significant that they have come out with these strong words here?
2: yeah I mean I think it matters a little um Qatar uh, is a, a major player obviously in the region um, not only recently brokering negotiations behind the scenes but often playing an interesting and unexpected role uh, in Gulf uh, the relations between the Gulf and the rest of the Middle East over the last 10 15 years um of course the real problem here the real issue the contradiction which is at the heart of so much of the problems uh, in in the Middle East and Something that I looked into in the issues in that book that you raised is that the people of the Arab world are overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly against what Israel is doing and indeed against even the recognition uh, or the full diplomatic normalization um, between their countries and Israel. So what that means in practice is that in order for the particular configuration of power that exists in the Middle East to continue, in order for Israel to exist in the way that it does... You can't have democracy in the Middle East. You have to have a set of of rulers that do things like this, saying every once in a while, um, this is unacceptable, uh, sometimes behind the scenes, brokering deals, but more or less accepting a a configuration of regional power, which the people of their countries would not uh, and would insist upon uh, rejecting if they actually had control over their government. So so I think it matters a little bit. Of course, Israel, if they like, can say that the GCC is a set of reactionary monarchies, um, which is right. But again, the larger issue, I think, is that uh, they're there partially um, because they are part of a very carefully constructed but unstable system, which needs to stay um, intact if Israel is going to, to continue to act the way that it does and continue to be embedded into regional power relations in the important way that it has been for 50 years.
1: I totally understand how that makes sense, right? That, that Israel and I suppose you know it's it's Western backers, United States principally. It, it's very helpful for them to have these dictatorships in the Arab world who can basically make peace with with Israel, um, either explicitly or or implicitly. And they're not particularly responsive to their populations, so that's fine, even though their populations are very much not in favor of peace deals with, with Israel. Do we have concrete examples where sort of there was a move to democracy and then it got quashed because of the Israel issue? And I suppose, I know you've written about the, I haven't read your new book yet, I have to admit, but I I know you have talked and, and written about the Arab Spring. Obviously, Egypt did go to, you know, a very brief democratic transition, the Muslim Brotherhood won, and then they were overthrown by the old military establishment. I mean, did that have anything to do with Israel? Was that because, you know, the West was too worried that it would go down a different sort of root and have different geopolitical alliances or was it completely unrelated
2: we know that the gcc nations the reactionary monarchies um uh, that i just described played a role in making the 2013 cc coup happen so one of the strange sort of double double effects that uh, takes place in my book is a group in Egypt in 2013, pretending to be kind of the kind of grassroots, citizen-led, digitally coordinated protesters that 2011 was really made up of, it turned and then they and put together the protest movement that led to the overthrow of, of Sisi in 2013. And then we found out later they had been funded the whole time by the United Arab Emirates. Um, so, it, so uh, it was that particular configuration of power: the reactionary and powerful. Gulf monarchies that played some role in 2013 and going back to the Cold War, one of the major reasons the United States decided to start supporting both Israel and Saudi Arabia, the um, Saudi-led monarchy, uh, 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 monarchical hegemony in in the Gulf, was fear of a anti-imperialist Arab socialism emanating from Egypt. So we don't know exactly precisely why the UAE Acted in that way, but we do know that the Obama administration, much of the rest of the West, accepted the CC coup, and we do know that one of their stated reasons for doing so was the fear of uh, Islamism, terror, um, or you could read that in another way as uh, unacceptable opposition to Israel. So I think it's indirect. I think I don't think you we we don't see like examples of somebody overthrowing a democracy because of this issue, but you can see the particular the power configurations that came that were put into place as a result. Of Cold War policy, and when they are threatened, those actors often act, um, you know, independently of the United States. But um, still, in order to maintain those same those same configurations, so from 2011 to 2013, Egypt had a shot at democracy, and it was it was it was that one two punch: the the UAE support for Tamarod, and then ultimately the West's decision to come together behind Sisi, who cracked down on what you know he called terrorism immediately. Um, that that helps to kill. Um the so-called Arab Spring killed alongside, of course, with Saudi Arabia's invasion of, of Bahrain. so it's it's more complex than um, it's, it's more complex than uh, a simple crushing of democracy. We are going to go straight
1: on to our next story. Immigration is back on the political agenda in Britain for two reasons. First, Home Secretary James Cleverly is in Rwanda today to try and salvage the Tory plans to send asylum seekers to that country without. Britain processing their claims first. He said this in a press conference with Rwanda's foreign minister.
3: Your country has made a clear and unambiguous commitment to the safety of uh, people who come here. Uh, That has been uh, displayed and we have seen that in practice. You've also made a strong commitment to work with the UK and international partners in order to uh, make sure that the robustness of your judicial system uh, is clearly on display and we are very proud to be a long-standing partner in that uh, endeavour.
1: The new treaty signed by Cleverly and the Rwandan government is designed to address concerns raised by the Supreme Court including um, that Rwanda would remove arrivals to their home country so that was the concern of the Supreme Court. This treaty um, in it now Rwanda says we promise not to return people to their home countries. So Britain is hoping this will change the mind of, of the Supreme Court. Later in the week, the UK government is also expected to put forward legislation that declares Rwanda a safe country for migrants. The assumption presumably being, if we say it's safe, it must be safe. right? So they're not proposing an investigation into the safety or otherwise of sending migrants to Rwanda. They're just declaring it safe, and therefore it must be true. The second reason migration is in the news is that yesterday the government put forward new proposals aimed to reduce overall net migration. Here's Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick.
4: We stood on an election manifesto in 2019 to use the levers that we were going to have for the first time after leaving the European Union to control net migration. That's what the public want. That's what the public have been voting for at pretty much every general election for 30 years. And now today we are truly using those levers, we're pulling them to ensure that we bring down the levels of net migration. This is the biggest ever intervention by any government to reduce the numbers of people coming to our country. The claim that this is the biggest ever
1: intervention in migration policy in Britain is based on the prediction or assumption that it will reduce net migration by 300,000 people per year. Now that might sound dramatic, and indeed it is, but it would still leave net migration at levels higher than any year before 2021. Net migration hovered at around 300,000 for most of the 2010s before reaching 745,000 in 2020 twenty two. It's of course a result of Brexit. Most people expected migration to fall after that, not double. And the change is based largely on the loosening of restrictions for non EU migration after we left the European Union. And that's led to an increase in work and student visas. This chart from The Economist shows that in 2022, the biggest group of migrants to Britain were students and their dependents. That was followed by people with work visas and their dependents. And there were also a significant number of people on Hong Kong and Ukraine humanitarian visas. Obviously, those international students keep our university system afloat and those workers keep our economy and in particular, our healthcare sector afloat. So the government has focused most of its efforts on deterring Not those students and those workers, but rather their dependents. Earlier this year, the Tories stopped international students bringing dependent family members along with them. And yesterday, they announced the same restrictions would apply to workers in the health and social care sector who will no longer be able to bring family members. Now, that seems especially harsh. We're telling foreign workers, come here and care for our families, but don't you dare try to care for your own. Also in the plans are proposals to raise the salary threshold for work visas from £26,000 to £39,000, so a massive jump. That doesn't include workers in health and social care, as the health and social care system would completely collapse, but it does apply to workers in hospitality. Kay Burley put that to Robert Jenrick on Sky. 95% of visas granted for chefs and managers last year, they would not be able to come in if this 38,700 figure was in place.
4: Well, we want to ensure that British companies are training and investing in British workers. That is fundamentally important to our country. There are millions of people who are on welfare or economically inactive. You heard Mel Stride just the other day at the Autumn Statement. So you're
0: saying, want to get off your bottom and go and do these jobs?
4: I'm saying there's a moral question here that we we want to help people off welfare and into work, rather than reaching for the easy lever of foreign labour. And we also want companies to be investing in their workforce, paying them higher wages. We're just raising the national living wage, uh, investing in apprenticeships and skills, things this government has been promoting since we first came to power in 2010. Uh, An economy which is solely based on bringing foreign labour into the UK is is not a sustainable path to prosperity.
0: Voters need to be careful what they wish for because they're going to have to go and do these jobs.
4: Well, people do whichever job they want to do, Okay, We're not telling people to do particular jobs. What we're saying is we would rather a British company was training and investing in their own workforce rather than reaching to bring foreign labour into the UK. And we certainly don't think that it's healthy for the economy to be undercutting the wages of British workers by paying them 20% less than their British counterparts, which is what um, the rules currently allow. That's interesting sort of exchange there, I thought, because I mean,
1: it is, you know, no one really expected net migration to go up to above 700,000 after Brexit. So before Brexit was around 300,000, it went up to 700,000. So I think the idea that, you know, this isn't a, a policy outcome that many of the public sort of actively wanted, I don't think it's, you know, an outrage to say, okay, let's tweak the system so that net migration falls a bit. You know, that that, that doesn't seem to me like a a, a, a door to, to fascism. You know, It seems to me like very really normal policy making. But it does seem to me that this sort of shows how strange this debate is because essentially you've got people that want to come to this country who want to do jobs here. Like Maybe there are higher wages here than where they're coming from. It increases productivity if people move from uh, an area with low productivity to an area with high productivity. So in terms of the net global output, it's good. Um, you've also got lots of people who are on long-term sickness who don't feel able to work and you know that doesn't seem to be working too badly but what Robert Jenner wants to do is to say well you guys who are on long-term sickness I'm going to bully you out of your homes so you can go and work in restaurants and we know what happens when they try and sort of use sanctions and conditionality to get people um, out of long-term sickness and into work it tends to drive what it often does actually is just add mental health problems to physical health problems because people get enormously stressed when they're being bullied into into work. Um, It it doesn't necessarily lead to to, to net social goods. So the idea that we're going to keep people out specifically so people on long-term sickness can be bullied back into work to do the jobs that these immigrants actually wanted to do seems like a sort of strange set of moral assumptions that Robert Jenrick had. He said this is a moral question. Vincent, obviously, this debate not unique to to Britain. Um, governments feel like they have some obligation to say we can't have unlimited economic migration. At the same time, there's massive vacancies in the job market, especially in things such as health and social care. Um, our government always gets into this mess because they're sort of saying, "Well, the social care sector should pay more wages," then um, so that more people in Britain want to want to work in that sector. But then they won't increase the funding to social care, so it's impossible to pay higher wages without all the care homes going bust. I mean what's your what's your interpretation of this debate?
2: Yeah, I mean it sort of mirrors a bit of what Trump has tried to do and probably would try to do. Um, if he were to be reelected, it's not so much about. In our case, often, I mean, in the in the U.S. context, there's this discourse that we all, we everyone wants immigration of some kind. We, you know, we're a nation of immigrants. We always want more immigrants. But what Trump tried to do is to limit the number of people that came as a result of extended family relationships, so that more of those um, more of those visas could be handed to highly skilled workers in, you know, uh, in strategic industries. And of course, uh, the question of benefits is tough to translate to the US context because we essentially have very little benefits. There's very few people that you could actually force, force into the labor market. But it's something that is, of course, I mean, this is, again, this is to go back to my particular set of concerns. This the inequality between the first world and the rest of the world, the 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 real material distance between people that are able to live in London, New York, uh, and the people that live in the global majority, is going to power a bunch of very difficult and very ugly, I think, um, political processes uh, over the next few decades. Dealing with that, I think, will be one of the main things facing humanity um, in the future. And of course, in my in my country, uh, totally out um, uh, divorced from reality. The discourse on one half of the political spectrum is often, "Well, Europe's already gone. Uh, There's no more Europe. It's uh, it's been it's been replaced by um, bad foreigners from from bad countries." So, I mean, yeah, this is this is not going away. It's something that I think um, we will be paying very close attention to in the upcoming upcoming election. (laughs) But it is it, it is it stems from a real material. Inequality between that is built into the global system, at least in since the the Third World movement was violently put down uh, seventy years ago, and we just decided to have an, a wildly unequal and uh, wildly unequal planet that is heading towards environmental catastrophe. There, so there's there's real structural conditions behind all of this. There's this guy Brian Kaplan who wrote a book in favor of open borders. Um, I, I mean, I don't particularly agree with it, but it
1: is you know very well argued. And he was on a podcast where sort of someone put to him, well. Don't you think that instead of having open borders, because his argument is the sort of economist one, which is to say, well, if you've got all of these people in 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 low wage, low productivity countries who want to go to high wage, high productivity countries, if you just let them go from one place to the other, then that will increase global output by trillions of dollars. Um, so there's this sort of analogy of, of, of there are sort of these trillion dollar bills on the sidewalk that could just be picked up if we if we reduce borders. I was listening to him on a podcast. I was saying, well, well, shouldn't we just actually improve development and global equality. And he was like, well, how to make countries develop is one of the hardest questions we've ever asked, right? It's it's very difficult. Obviously, China have managed to do it over the past few decades, but it's very difficult for countries to go from being a poor one to a rich one, so why don't we let everyone move? As I say, he has some problematic assumptions in his argument, but I do think it's a kind of, you know, he puts it forward in, to some degree, a persuasive way. The policies we've discussed so far will make life more miserable for workers coming to Britain because they can't bring their loved ones. um, And for many others, it will stop them coming altogether. The change, though, that's caused the most consternation among UK commentators, however, affects the rights of UK citizens, people already here. um, And that's namely our right to marry. Now, that's because the minimum income requirement for spouse or family visas is set to be raised from £18,600 to £38,700. So more than doubling. Tim Stanley is a columnist at The Telegraph. He tweeted this. A friend has just messaged in a blind panic to ask if James Cleverley's immigration plan means he can't bring his partner into the country. The government is doubling the salary required of a British subject to bring a spouse or dependent into the country to £38,700. So if you fall in love and marry someone from overseas that's the income you need to settle them here it's very high something like 75 percent of us earn less than that is it fair to limit family formation to the rich is it conservative potentially to divide families so Tim Stanley um if you don't know he's a he's a telegraph columnist so on the right um but he also and I think in in general I mean he's not exactly into sort of free movement and lots of migration but he is also into family values and so his his sort of conservative small C conservative, Politics of family values has led him to say, "Oh, there's a bit of a problem here. If we're saying that only the richest 25% of people can have the freedom to marry someone from abroad and then live with them, um, that's problematic. Potentially, it's not even conservative." I thought that was an interesting article or argument. Sorry, from Tim Stanley, um, Vincent. I want to ask you a personal question. You've lived all over the world: Brazil, Indonesia, the US, where you're from. Have you ever had immigration law stand between love?
2: <laughs> no, no, it hasn't. Uh, one, I think, because I'm American, so we often have the easiest job. We have the easiest time getting our passport recognized wherever we are, and also, too, I've never, I've never been married. Uh, no one's wanted to marry me so far, uh, fortunately. Um, but no, but this, um, that is shocking to me. That that kind of an income cap uh, or uh, 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 basement on getting a spouse immigration rights is far beyond what what Trump even said that he wanted to do. I think in the United States um you only have to have you only have to be earning 125% of the poverty line so you just have to be like prove that you have an income essentially to get a spouse a, a green card. I think that would be considered um quite radical in the US context, but no no me personally uh I have not fortunately or unfortunately I've not come across this issue in my own life.
1: There's uh give it time, give it time. I have got a good feeling Let's go to our next story. The International Climate Conference COP28 is currently taking place in Dubai. This year, it's been hit by criticism, as we've talked about before on this show, for taking place in the oil-rich United Arab Emirates. And for having a president, Suntan al Jaber, with close links to fossil fuel industries. In fact, he's the CEO of the Emirates National Oil Company. And Al seemed to confirm the validity of those criticisms when The Guardian published some comments he'd made in a panel session in November. This is Jabert getting into an argument with former Irish President Mary Robinson. In this clip, you'll hear Al voice, though he won't be visible on screen.
5: I respect that you've done a lot of hard work preparing for this COP and that you've listened to the science. The science is very acute now. We don't have any time. They say six or seven years. We got to peak. By 2025, Mom, the latest in fossil fuel. You, you, um, new fossil fuel, and your company is investing in a lot more new fossil fuel, and that's 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 going to hurt women.
3: Uh, ma'am, <laughs> you've you've just accused me of something that is not correct. I'm sorry, I don't take it. Now I ask you to prove to hey, me. I, I read that how your
5: company is is investing in a lot more fossil fuel in the future. Yes, ma'am, that you're I'm reading
3: sure. you're reading your own media which is biased and wrong. I am telling you, I am the man in charge, and it is wrong, ma'am. You need to listen to me. Please, I'm, I'm please, very, for I'm very once. pleased to hear it. I'm very pleased to hear it. It is wrong. You guys write a lie, and you believe it. I'm well, sorry. I, I, I do I not accept really it. I
5: follow what I see. Um, I am
3: not accepting this. I'm sorry. Time. I am sorry. I respect you, and I do not accept any false accusations. I've been very clear about my position. This is wrong. And you're asking for a phase-out of fossil fuel. Please help me, show me a roadmap for a phase-out of fossil fuel that will allow, that will allow for socio, for sustainable socio-economic development, unless you want to take the world back into caves.
1: So that's the president of, of the, the COP negotiations trying to move us towards a green economy, saying to move away from fossil fuels would take us back to um, the Stone Age, essentially. Um, also in that session Algeber said quote there is no science out there that says that the phase out of fossil fuels is going to achieve 1.5 degrees to be fair I, I do think that most people are saying it is, You know, 1.5 degrees is pretty much out of reach now well, the charts I see seem to suggest that we could go over 1.5 but then go under it again over time, I suppose with a bit of carbon sequestration. The 1.5 degrees is, of course, a reference to the legally binding treaty on climate change agreed in Paris in 2015 to limit climate change to 1.5 degrees Celsius um, from pre-industrial temperatures. Phasing out fossil fuels, of course, has been a constant demand from scientists and campaigners ever since then. So it's interesting to hear COP28's president and CEO of the Emirates National Oil Company Argue for a change in direction. And those comments led to this awkward encounter between Al and Channel 4 News. Oh, Al can, 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 can you just give equation.
3: us your response? The Secretary oh General God. says that am, we sir? must
1: start phasing sir? out
3: fossil fuels. I'm Are you, I just want to know what your response is okay. to that, sir. I'm, you wanna, will,
6: you, I don't know to will you answer the question about phasing out fossil fuels? Come to my press conference.
5: Okay, the press conference is in half an hour guys. We'll be, we'll, we'll be there. We'll this be there. Thanks
1: for very much. We'll be there. He's not a very happy oil baron. In that conference, he mentioned al didn't appear any happier about answering questions from the press. Here's what happened when one journalist asked if he stands by the view that there's no science behind calls to cut fossil fuels. I honestly think that there is some confusion out there
3: and misrepresentation and misinterpretation. And I have repeatedly sen- said in many occasions and in many different platforms, that it is the science
1: that have guided the principles of our strategy as COP28 presidency. Al Jaber isn't the only person with deep links to fossil fuels at COP28, with The Guardian reporting this. More lobbyists than ever before have been granted access to COP28, with nearly 2,500 people linked to oil and gas industries turning up. But it isn't all dodgy deals and jostling for influence over policymakers. There have been some powerful speeches too, mostly um, from leaders of countries in the global south. President of Honduras, um, Shamara Castro de Zelaya, argued it was capitalism that bears a primary responsibility for this climate catastrophe. And Brazil's President Lula pointed out the hypocrisy of Western warmongering. So talking both about the inequality in terms of who emits carbon and then who suffers from climate change and also making the contrast between the amount um, that I suppose the major powers um, spend on their militaries when they could be pumping that into a green energy transition. Um, There was also this from Colombia's president, Gustavo Petro, who made this connection between the climate and geopolitics.
5: I invite you to think about a fusion, a combination of events, the climate crisis and the genocide of the Palestinian people. Are these events disconnected is my question. Or are we seeing here a mirror of what is going to happen in the future? The genocides and the barbaric acts unleashed against the Palestinian people is what awaits those who are fleeing South because of the climate crisis. Most victims of climate change, which will be counted in the billions, will be in those countries that do not emit CO2 or emit very little. Without the transfer of wealth from the north to the south, the climate victims will increasingly have less drinking water in their homes and they will have to migrate north, where the melting glaciers will make it possible for people to have drinking water. The exodus will be in the billions. There will be pushback against the exodus with violence, with barbaric acts committed. This is what is happening in Gaza. This is a rehearsal for the future. Why have the major carbon-consuming nations made it possible for the systemic killing of thousands of children in Gaza is my question. Because if they do not kill them, they will invade their country to prevent them from consuming their carbon. We can therefore see what the future will look like. There will be a shrinking of democracy and unleashed barbaric acts against our peoples, those of us who do not emit CO2, those of us who are poor.
1: Greta Thunberg um, recently has, has been under fire for sort of connecting climate change with the Palestinian struggle. Uh, it's not a sort of connection which is made particularly often um, in, in, in Western political capitals, but you sort of saw, I suppose Lula wasn't so, so, so directly referring to Palestine, but he was talking about militarism. Vincent, is this sort of connection of the, the fight against militarism and the fight against climate change, is that you know, it, it sounds somewhat unusual to a Western ear. Is, is that very, very common when it comes to, to South America?
2: Petro's analysis seemed basically spot on. Um, it seems that in the last few weeks, what has become very clear, although it was probably already clear to many people in the global South, to many people like Petro and Lula, is that governments and major media outlets in the first world have a very easy time making up an excuse for why it's okay that quite a lot of brown people are dying somewhere, um, it is. I think that the, that's the most powerful part of his analogy. Of course, it is true that the U.S. military and the countries to which the U.S. military supplies, uh, the United States supplies a lot of arms, um, are huge polluters. But I think what Gaza really drove home is that if the particular situation in 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 Palestine right now can be rendered into a narrative which says, like you indicated at the beginning of the show, oh, well, I suppose tens of thousands of these people just have to die. Um, It's quite easy to imagine how that's going to happen in the case of impending climate catastrophe. The countries that are responsible for the vast majority of pollution over the course of industrial development, um, Petro seems to be saying, and I I find it quite convincing, um, we'll be able to come up with a reason why there's nothing really you could do. We would love to. That would be great, but we can't. Um, and I think this is something that um, I said at the beginning of the Gaza the Gaza tragedy. I mean, uh, this is a tweet, so I feel stupid referencing a tweet. But um, I said that at the beginning of the Gaza tragedy, there are moments when the actual rules of the international order become clear. And it's often shocking to some people. Um, but a, a, quite a lot of people in the global south already know. They already know that the rules are um, quite a lot of, all, most of the violence and almost all of the environmental damage is coming from one part of the world. Um, It matters when those people die, but it doesn't matter when everybody else dies. Um, what I find interesting about both Petro and Lula, though, in this particular, uh, at this particular conjuncture, is that they both care quite a lot about the environment. Lula has overseen a drastic reduction in deforestation since at least Um, certainly since uh, Jair Bolsonaro's administration. So these are are two men that actually care about reducing um, environmental catastrophe. But what they want to do is to create a global system in which it doesn't actually matter if you care. What they would like to do is to create... At first, Lulu was talking about an OPEC of the forest. Now he's talking about a global fund through which... Countries in the global south would be paid to do what is best for everyone in the global system to do to preserve their forests um, and and limit environmental destruction. And then that way it becomes rational for even guys that don't care about the environment. They might be elected here or there down down the road um, to do the right thing. So that is, I think, is the is the strongest. Point that emerges out of all of that is that you know everybody in the whole world has national politics, everybody in the whole world has national economic constraints, but as a as a global system, we could make it rational for some of the most important actors to behave differently, and that requires a uh, I think justified historically transfer of resources from the first world to the third world. Now again, <laughs> easier said than done, but I think that's the the real force of of the analogy that that has that, uh, made.
1: I presume an OPEC of the forest would have you'd, you'd have countries probably presumably in the global south We say we've still got quite a lot of rainforests and we are clubbing together and demanding that the global north transfer us a significant amount of money so that we don't do what the global north did and cut them down. Is that my understanding correctly?
2: Yep, that's what it was. The Lula got together with Indonesia, I think the DRC. And one other, one other major country. I'm forgetting it at the beginning of of just after being elected. Now it seems that it's he's talking more in the terms of a a global forests fund, which will do something similar. Um, And yeah, that's what it is. It's it's uh, the the global you know the international community. But of course, uh, the 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 biggest economic heft in the international community is first world nations pay. The countries with a lot of forests, not to cut them down, and then that changes the incentive structure. So that doesn't rely upon every election always in the future of Indonesia uh, a green president winning.
1: So that is the OPEC of the forests or the forest. I don't know what he's calling it. Um, the Guardian of critiquing Lula for his policy on you know the, the traditional OPEC, which is about oil production. This is the headline: Lula's bid to style himself a climate leader at COP28 undermined by OPEC move. Now, the background here is that Brazil has just announced it will become an observer at OPEC, so not a full member of OPEC, OPEC being the group of oil-producing nations. Um, Lula has said that he is participating to encourage other countries to move away from oil. Vincent, what's going on here? Is, is it um, Lula who's the hypocrite?
2: Uh, this It is Lula who is in a complex and contradictory position as a result of his place in domestic political uh, disputes, but also as he tries to surf what he understands this wave uh, of uh, a, a global transformation towards multipolarity in a way that it will be beneficial for the, for the nations of the global South. So, yeah, absolutely. In 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 Brazil, um, as you know, uh, as, as I suppose quite a lot of uh, uh, viewers know, both uh, Br- uh, Lula just barely got out of prison, and then just barely. Um, beat Jair Bolsonaro in election last year, but uh, Bolsonarista forces in the domestic political system are still quite strong. Uh, Petrobras, um, as it is as as state owned oil companies are for much of the of Latin America, including Latin American left, including Latin American uh, uh, eco socialist left, um, is quite an important company. And so Lula is is Lula's government is overseeing. Um, fossil fuel production at the same time that he's pushing. Um, he's he's very right to be proud of uh, uh, Joplin deforestation uh, and pushing for this OPEC of the forest or a, a forest fund. So this is something that is a that, uh, he's had fights over, had, he's had fights about in his own uh, administration, Marina Silva. Um, they seem to be doing pretty well now, but Marina Silva, the famous environmentalist who was invited into the coalition to help Bolsonaro, um, has been upset with some ways that the domestic political economy has taken Lula. Um, but this is a strange, uh, you know, this is the type of contradiction that I say that everybody faces to a greater, or lesser extent, even when they really want to, do great things for the environment. He has. He's thinking first of all about surviving politically, uh, domestically. Um, but again, this could all be changed if there was huge, huge transfers of money. But you know, again, you can't just snap your snap your fingers and make that happen. It is true that uh, oil production is not is not cancelled in Brazil just because Lula won at the end of 2022.
1: That does kind of come back to your point about sort of shifting the incentives in the global economy, so that a, a leader in the global south doesn't have to decide between tax revenue, let's say, and pumping out for or tax revenue and going green, you know, to put in that sort of somewhat banal phrase. So if the, if the Global North were to, to reimburse the Global South for every barrel of oil they keep in the ground, then you, you wouldn't have that same sort of tension. Let's get to our next story. Josh Paul was a senior official in the US State Department who worked on the approval of arms transfers. That was until he resigned soon after the start of the Gaza war. He posted a resignation notice saying the Biden administration was, quote, rushing to provide arms to Israel. And he said that was short-sighted, destructive, unjust, and contradictory to the very values that we publicly Espouse. Um, He's been speaking to the media ever since, and has given another pretty explosive interview to CNN's Christiane Amanpour. In the first clip, we'll show you he explains the relaxed approval process for U.S. arms going to Israel.
6: In all the arms transfers I've been a part of discussing before, including to Israel, uh, there has always been space for discussion and debate. You can raise concerns about how are these arms going to be used? Uh, Do we have confidence that laws of war, laws of proportionality, are going to be respected? Uh, Do we have concerns about some of the units that these arms might be going to and their track records? Uh, What was different here was that there was no discussion. There was no space for that discussion. Uh, There was simply an approach of essentially the barn doors are open and that remains the case. Uh, You know, the Wall Street Journal reported just in the last couple of days that America has transferred over 4,000 dumb bombs to Israel, uh, several thousand guidance kits and 45,000 artillery shells. So the bundles doors remain open. And while I'm certainly encouraged uh, to hear what Vice President Harris said, what Secretary Austin has said, uh, for as long as those barn doors remain open, I don't know why Israel would take those warnings seriously.
1: It's a dumb bomb. I had to look it up after watching that clip. They're, they're a non-guided missile. Um, so obviously we, we're hearing all the time that Israel are targeting all of their their bombs, even though they've managed to kill you know way 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 more civilians than, than militants. But that's what they say. But the Americans are giving them missiles that aren't even guided. Um, he's suggesting yes, it's it's fine that Kamala Harris and the Defence Secretary have come out and sort of said, "Oh, Israel, we would like you to 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 follow humanitarian law, please." But he's saying, "What's the point in saying that if you are unconditionally sending them?" All the weapons they need to carry out, you know, the pretty brutal genocide or potentially war they are overseeing in Gaza. Um, next, Josh Paul is asked about the Biden claim um, that the United States has to hug Israel close in order to have influence over their decisions.
6: First of all, I would ask where that embrace gets the United States. Uh, if you look at what is unfolding now, it is not only a disaster in Gaza, but it is a foreign policy disaster for the United States, across the Arab world, and frankly, across the Global South. Uh, we seem like hypocrites when we criticize Israel, uh, where rather when we criticize Russia uh, for human rights abuses, but fail to do so with Israel. Um, and so I think that our, our embrace, we have to be careful with that embrace because it is draws us in as well. Uh, secondly, of course, the answer is we do have leverage that we can use within that embrace. I'm not suggesting that America should not remain close with Israel. I'm suggesting simply that as we are the provider of arms, as we are the provider of billions of dollars in taxpayer-funded assistance every year uh, to what is actually a wealthy country, we do have a fair amount of leverage. And of course, we provide Israel with security and diplomatic backup uh, across the region that has enabled its integration. Uh, we have a lot of leverage here to set Israel on a better path and to end this senseless killing in Gaza. We are not using it.
1: That was a good answer. And to be honest, I think uh, the argument that you often hear that the United States has to hug Israel close so it can influence it, I think is the most disingenuous and kind of stupid argument I've, uh, I've heard um, throughout this war, in fact, because the argument is, oh, uh, unless they have Israel on side, unless Israel think, oh, the United States is an ally, they're not going to listen to the United States. Well, the reason the United States has leverage over Israel isn't because Israel thinks the United States likes them. <laughs> it's because the United States funds Israel and gives them the di- diplomatic support they need in the in the um, Security Council on the UN. So it it seems completely self-serving for the United States to say, oh no, we're letting them do whatever they want so that we can influence them, maybe. Right, it's complete, complete nonsense. Um, To the extent that I don't think they even believe it themselves. I I think essentially um, many people in the Biden administration, you know, I don't don't think they actively want to see tens of thousands of Gazans die, but I also don't think they necessarily care that much. It's not in their essential geostrategic interests to save the lives of thousands of Gazans, And so I don't think they're that fussed, right? They want to be able to persuade some of their allies in the Arab world that they're not you know, committed to the genocide of the Palestinian people. Because as Vincent was saying before, many Arab publics care deeply about the Palestinian people, as many publics do across the world. But ultimately, they want to say, okay, they, they want their cake and to eat it. They're going to give Israel all the support they need while sort of saying, oh, we would prefer them to follow international law. I want to show you now the most extraordinary um, claim that Josh Paul made. Um, he was answering a question from Christian Amanpour about the atrocities Hamas committed on October the 7th, including allegations of rape.
6: I think what happened on October 7th was an absolute atrocity, was a thousand atrocities. Uh, I think at the same time we condemn those atrocities, we have to condemn the atrocities that happen every day to Palestinians in the West Bank. You mentioned sexual violence. Uh, I was part of the human rights vetting process for arms going to Israel, and a charity called Defense of Children International Palestine uh, drew our attention at the State Department to the sexual assault, actually the rape of a 13-year-old boy that occurred in an Israeli prison in the Moscovia in Jerusalem. Uh, we examined these allegations. Uh, we believed they were credible. We put them to, Isra- to uh, the government of Israel. And you know what happened the next day? The IDF went into the DCIP offices and removed all their computers and declared them a terrorist entity. Um, I think it is vital that atrocities not happen to anyone, not sexual, atroc- not sexual violations, not any kind of gross violation of human rights. We are looking at a situation where there is so much dehumanification, where people are not seen for the value that they have. And I think that's true whether you're talking about those who are attacked on their kibbutz or those who are attacked in their homes in Gaza or in the West Bank. What we really need is to center the human beings who are at the core uh, and who are suffering so much uh, in, in this conflict. It was a very sort of
1: passionate, compelling argument there. There was also a really explosive allegation. So he's saying there was a charity, um, an Israeli charity that had noticed or had sort of, or I'm not sure if it was Israeli or Palestinian actually, but a, a charity in the region had brought attention to the US State Department that a Palestinian had been raped in an Israeli prison. And the response from the Israelis was not to take that on board, but to shut down the charity and call it a terrorist organization, right? Now, we hadn't heard that before, so if this is all true, then the United States presumably sat on that pretty shocking information, right? So, extraordinary. Vincent, I suppose your comment potentially on the allegation that was made there, but also on what I want to hear from you. So, Josh Paul was sort of suggesting... Not only does it show the U.S. to be hypocritical, but it's potentially against their national interest to hug Israel so close because countries in the global south will see that they're hypocrites and potentially you know, be, be less likely to, to line up behind them when it comes to conflicts such as, as Russia, Ukraine. Uh, I know you, sort of, you, you referred to a tweet earlier. I think it was the one where you sort of said you know, uh, in moments like this, there are some people in the global north that realize, oh, the rules-based system isn't really something that exists. Everyone in the global south knew this already, And that almost made me somewhat doubt that it does matter to America's strategic interests if they are shown to be backing something like this. Is it the case that while some people in, you know, liberals in the North might be surprised, I can't believe we're backing this. Everyone in the rest of the world is like, of course they're backing this.
2: I do think that there is a statute of limitations on how much, how long Accusations of hypocrisy against the hegemon stick. Uh, you know, if you look back at the ways that the United States have been acting over the last twenty five years, basically every five years, if not every year, there's something that is done by the U.S. government that uh, shows it to not really believe in the global system that it purports to believe in, but shows that the actual global system, which I do think exists and does have a set of rules, means that certain countries can do things, certain things, and other some countries. Uh, cannot. Uh, other countries, uh, it matters when people in certain countries die and it matter. And it does not matter when people in other countries uh, die. However, I do think this is interesting. I think this is this movement um, more than what mattered, uh, what happened in Qatar uh, that we spoke about at the beginning of the show. This movement, there's two movements in the United States uh, that I find interesting that I do think matter. And as you, I, to, I totally agree with you. I think this bear hug argument is, if not, it's certainly dic- ridiculous and probably disingenuous. I don't think anyone really believes it. The United States doesn't bear hug Uh, The other countries that whose behavior it actually wants to change. Uh, There's no reason to believe that the United States really, really, really wants to change the behavior of Israel. But there are two. But but Israel does care about the United States, not because we say we like you, but because we're the hegemon. Uh, We're the most powerful country militarily and economically. Um, The the Israel relies quite a bit on the posture of the United States, or at least it has um, since the 1960s uh, to maintain its current position. And there are two things happening in the United States I think which I think do matter, perhaps three things. Um, one is public opinion is changing on Israel. Uh, especially young people, and especially non-white Americans are pulling away from support for Israel's actions um, in Palestine. and and this matters, of course, in the long term, uh, the United States. Like, uh, becoming less white, and of course, uh, like every other country, aging and replacing its homeless people with, with younger people. And then this other movement inside parts of the United States government, it seems that there's people in the State Department, there's people that are in the larger state, as we understand, including prominent members of the foreign policy establishment that believe well, whatever good Israel had done for us previously, and Biden has this famous that famous speech back in the 70s that uh, Israel is one of the best investments money can buy. If Israel didn't exist, we'd have to invent it. A lot of people are now saying, well, whatever good it had done for us geopolitically, um, this is now starting to be bad. I think it's not only because of the, the charge of hypocrisy that that is being lobbed at the United States, but the the notion that, Everything that Israel is doing now, the, the very exaggerated way in which Israel is responding compared to perhaps in the United States, in the mind of a, a State Department official would be the correct amount of mass murder to unleash on innocent people in Gaza, is re- relevant. Because when you see those splits within um, in the state, uh, within the Democratic Party, in uh, the larger apparatus of U.S. empire, or in the larger apparatus of U.S. foreign policy, that really does start to matter to Israel in the long term, more than Lula Petro um, who, uh, calling uh, what's happening a genocide. We're going to go straight to our final story. Benjamin
1: Netanyahu's senior advisor, Mark Regev, has appeared on CNN, where he was interviewed by anchor Jake Tapper. That's when Regev made a claim that we all know is a lie, one that Tapper was quick to pick him up on.
7: I think it will be seen that the IDF really has done everything. That is humanly possible to try to safeguard innocent civilians.
2: It's very hard to believe that, especially on a day when one of our producers lost nine members of his family, nine members of his family who are not members of Hamas, not members of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, not members of any group, just nine people just trying to live their lives.
7: First of all, I, I extend my sorrow to him and my sympathies. But if I saw your report correctly, and, and please correct me if I say something wrong, that happened in Northern Gaza? Uh, in Gaza City, where a month ago we already asked all the civilians to leave, and most of them did. If there was like 1,200,000 people there, there was only a couple of tens of thousands left. And one has to ask, yes? They had ample opportunity to leave. I'm, I'm, I don't know what happened. I don't have the specific circumstances. I know there's deadly combat going on now in the north, still between these IDF and and and, and Hamas terrorists, yes? And we don't want to see anyone caught up in the crossfire, but why didn't they heed the advice and leave the area? You
2: can't blame them. I don't blame them. But you can't, there's fighting in the South now. Where where are, I mean, I've been asking this since October 7th, where are these people supposed to go? It was good that
1: Jake Tapper called him out on that, right? I mean, it's quite an extreme case because it's literally that man's colleague whose family were killed. So, you know, I think we saw a considerable amount of empathy there for the Palestinian people from Jake Tapper. Would it have been the case if, if if it wasn't, you know, someone with a direct connection to him? I don't know. I wouldn't want to sort of presume. But Vincent, it does seem dangerous for the Israelis here because the number of people they've killed, and especially the amount of journalists they've killed, means that there are lots of people at mainstream journalistic organizations that would usually be very supportive of Israel. And I have to say, actually, the, the clips I've seen of CNN, in general, they have been, very supportive of, of Israel. Many of their hosts are, are are very much sort of putting out Israeli talking points, I think, to, to a large degree. There's sort of clinks or chinks within that armor. Um, but here, the fact that so many journalists have been killed, the fact that so many people in Gaza have been killed, that even sort of anchors on CNN and mainstream media know someone who's died, right? Or, or know someone who's, who's, whose family have died. Does that potentially put Israel in a in a shaky situation?
2: Yeah, I said I think that this also matters. Uh, Jake Tapper, of course, is no radical anti-imperialist. Uh, this is the kind of guy that I think that if you see this kind of reaction from him, this does start to matter. And again, it matters not because world opinion has an automatic effect on Israeli policy. Of course, Israel was born, um, you know, uh, believing often for good reasons that you know the whole world was against it. Uh, often having the world shout out it uh, often leads Israel to double down, but. These kinds of shifts in mainstream parts of the United States, someone like Jake Jake Tapper changing uh, his opinion or expressing this kind of an opinion online or on on the air, I'm sorry. Um, The members of the State Department slowly changing their position, even rebelling against uh, executive policy. These things don't, I think, cause an automatic change to the situation on the ground, tragically. I think that's going to keep continuing the way it is. But I think the long term, these things start to change the possible trajectories over the next few years for the way that Israel can or will act uh, in, in, with regard to Palestinians. Vincent
1: Bevan, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I hope to have you back on as a co-host. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you everyone for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow for another live stream. I'll be in this seat at 6 p.m. For now, you've been watching our Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to NovaraMedia.com support.